this week, three sides of the coin. Wow, do we go down the rabbit hole of musical history one more time. We're joined with Michael Frondelli. This guy saw a kiss at one of their very first showcase performances. He worked with Eddie Kramer for years and years and years at Electric Ladyland. The stories of Kiss and so many other artists, amazing deep dive musical history. You got to listen. This is Three Sides of the Coin, talking all things Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. You got Mike, Tommy, and Mark. Um, I got to tell you, if you loved our David Leaf guest interview, you're going to love this one coming up. You got to stick through the very end. It's just some amazing discussions. But I think real quick, guys, Tommy, no comments, although we are getting a boatload of comments on our Vinnie Vincent episode. Yeah, go to go to our socials and check it out. You guys are fantastic. There's some really funny Vinnie Vincent comments yeah. this week. So we just don't have time because this is a two-hour interview. We don't want to waste any time today. We want to get right to it. You will be well. I, I I do want I do think we got to mention real quick, we don't have to discuss um the next off the soundboard has been announced. We were speculating last week what it was going to be. It has been announced. It is an animalized show featuring Mark St. John on lead guitar. Who knew there was a full soundboard recording? Maybe yeah. well, um, maybe Mark. <laughs> but almost. yes, the next off soundboard, Mark St. John, animalized show. Uh, excited as hell about that one coming out and if you're interested sonic boom is now available on digital platforms in the u.s meaning you can get it on itunes you can go to apple music and stream it you can stream it on spotify and i gotta just tell you mark i got a lot of new love for sonic boom now that great I album fucking play it over and over again yeah. i didn't need streaming i just listened to my freaking uh ipod that album's fucking do you awesome. know what streaming I, is I'm 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 falling in love with Stan. I'm really loving that tune. Love it, love it. Every that whole album's awesome. I've been saying it from day one. It, it, I will say right now, much better than Monster. I agree, and I love Monster. Yeah, but anyway, so it's out there. People have asked for years. When is it going to show up? It's there. Go get it. Go buy it. Go stream it. Amazing the love it's getting now that people actually listen to it. Well, that was something I was that was something I was thinking about as I'm going, yeah. wow, I'm loving this. I've listened to it like 10 times in, in the last week. And I'm like, huh, there's something to be said then not to do these exclusive deals where music is is put behind these walls that you can't get to, like Walmart. Um, I listen to music if it's available on all these platforms and I listen to it a lot and I fall in love with it. Cause I know we got go, you many IMs and shit I got this week, like, Oh my God, Sonic Boom's on or whatever it is. Yeah. And like, it's fucking awesome. Like, yeah, no shit. Where have you been since 2000 fucking nine? I mean, people can't listen to it. You, well, you couldn't go buy it on iTunes. Even if you wanted to buy it in CD or listen to it on your fucking iPod. 
Oh, well, Jesus and why, and why it's like it's you, a new record to some people. What what's well, an iPod? Yeah. And oh. why would you why would you run out why would you reach out to Mark? The only thing he oh. knows about streaming is when he's standing over the toilet urinating. Exactly, Tommy. <laughs> nice. You're absolutely right. That is all I care about. Streaming, that's it. I don't care about Liz tool approved. Liz, Liz is yelling down the hall, Mark, how's the streaming holding up? Full force yeah. stream today. <laughs> you know why? Because because streaming doesn't have bow wow. Because I, I can't get that on streaming. Classic Japanese metal, early metal. Matter of fact, they opened for Kiss in the what 70s. What is it? Bow wow. Oh, I thought you were talking about the group that does I Want Candy. I was no, thinking the no. same thing. Isn't that bow wow wow? Yeah. I, I will tell you. It's an extra, extra wow. wow. <laughs> All kidding aside. Do you want a band this, that's this only wow, stuff. or do you want a band with two wows? Wow, wow, wow. Two wows, it has to be better than one wow. Plus, wow. plus <laughs> do they put live New England? They put live New England on streaming services? Probably not. Well, was that a promo-only release? How, how about, how about like, you know, Sabbath Tommy, fucking promo single? How much shit is Mark all of a sudden how showing about us? Scars? They, well, they have I, this. I, I, look, speaking, wait a minute. Speaking of that, them. though, I don't. I, I'm sorry. I don't know who said it because I don't have it in front of me anymore. But one of the comments of this week's show said, "Mark has all that amazing Kiss stuff and Kiss posters, and the best he can do is you wanted the best poster hanging up." I'm like what? What over here? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> With all well, the great I guess posters, because you can't look that way, you could turn the camera. <laughs> anyway, guys, that, that no more discussion. We got an amazing guest. Yeah, I gotta get out of here. I should have got out of here two hours ago. Let's go. Oh, but it was worth it. It was today. It was. Today we are joined by Michael Frondelli. That name may not mean much to you unless you really have dug into musical history prior to this interview. Listen to this interview. All the way through the end, this guy was with, he, he saw a kiss at one of their very first showcase performances. It, yeah, I mean, Night Bob got Michael his first gig. Then he ended up working at Electric Ladyland for years with Eddie Kramer. Okay, just leave it at that. The discussion's amazing. Let it roll. We'll see you at the end. Com. Subscribe on YouTube. Follow and rate us on Spotify. Subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. We appreciate your support. Three sides of the coin. This is going to be a cool conversation, I know. Before we've even had this conversation, we are joined by Michael Frondelli. Now, if you, as a Three Sides listener, gave a listen to our David Leaf episode a number of weeks ago, Michael is the person that David Leaf referred to as... Well, you got to get Michael on. He's got some great kiss stories. <laughs> so here we go. It took us a few weeks of back and forth, but we got Michael on. Um, Michael, and, and we'll, Michael, we'll give you more than enough opportunity here to go into great detail here. But Michael goes all the way back to 1973 with kiss from the beginning. You, you basically 1973 to 1983, those 10 years. You said were kind of your um, history with Kiss. So, Michael, why don't you start with going all the way back to how did you first run into, see, become associated with 
with Kiss? Well, in 1973, I was working for a rehearsal studio in the Soho section of New York City called Baggy Studios. It was called Baggies because the uh, the owner used to deal weed. <laughs> I was going to say there had to be a drug reference to the Baggies name. <laughs> yeah, he was a great guy. Tom Edmondston, he was the Sun Music representative. And he was uh, supplying amplifiers to Jimi Hendrix and all kinds of great people back then. And uh, well, before, because Jimi was already gone in 1970. Um, so... We were doing a live concert, a showcase presentation at what was known, I think it was called the NFE Theater. It was the old Fillmore East. And they were doing a showcase presentation, a press presentation for Kiss. Uh, and Neil Bogart was coming in to announce the band to the press. And um, so for like a week, uh, our crew was setting up with uh, Sean Delaney, who was Bill Coyne's partner yep. uh, in Rocksteady. And uh, we were dealing with the, uh, the elevating drum riser, the exploding drumsticks. Um, I had no idea what we were about to see because I had never seen him in the makeup at that point. Had, had you heard of Kiss prior to this? Yeah, they used to play the Honkamonka Club in Queens and Coventry. Um, and then they were Wicked Lester. Which, so, which as, a, as a quick side, Michael, if it didn't come across your radar, uh, it was 50 years ago yesterday they played their first show ever at the Coventry. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that online. It was on Facebook. Yeah, uh, yeah so I'm from Queens, New York originally. So, so Gene and Paul were all from Forest Hills and Ace was from the Bronx. And I think Peter was from Brooklyn, Peter, Peter Chris Cola mm -hmm. and, um, you know, Stanley Eisen and Gene Klein, and, you know, Paul uh, Fraley, Paul Fraley. And uh, so these characters, we, we kind of knew them, but I was a snob. You know, I was into Zeppelin and the Beatles and the Stones and, you know, Kiss wasn't really on my radar at that point. Well, I, you know, it, it's hard to imagine that. But 50 years ago, Kiss was just a local unsigned band. Like every city had thousands of local unsigned bands. Right. I mean, that's what they were. It was just, a, you know, it was a bunch of musicians. You may have known the musicians. But as a band goes, they were just an unsigned band, local. Exactly. I mean, at that point, what was around were the Rascals, the Vagrants. Um, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of those were the local guys. You know, we knew them from Long Island because the Long Island had a big, uh, you know, club scene going on. And uh, but a lot of cover bands back then, too. But original bands were really like, what was happening out of, uh, uh, you know, with Leslie West and, and with the Felix Cavalieri and those guys. And, you know, I mean, it was loosely based on blues and soul. And then Kiss was a whole different ballgame. And uh, so here we are. We're at the NFE Theater. And at that point, I was in good shape and stacking cabinets and everything on the side of the stage and running cables and just doing a lot of grunt work. And um, 
And it was a, I don't know if you know, do you know Night Bob? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I just oh, saw yeah. him a couple he, weeks he, ago. He's, yeah, he's, been on the, he's, been on, he's been on the show. Yeah, well, Super Night Bob gave him my start. Night Bob was Night Bob at Baggy Studios. There was Day Bob, Bob Coffee, mm-hmm. and there was Night Bob. And yeah. Bob, Bob gave me my first gig. And uh, I, came, I just came back from, where was I? I can't remember. Now. Oh, I know where I was. I was in San Francisco. I had gone to, uh, I made a, a, I don't know, a, drove across country in three and a half days with two other people to go to Alembic, which was part of the Grateful Dead and uh, part of uh, Bear and, uh, you know, Paul, uh, you know, Augustus Stanley Owsley III, his company, he was out there and making these big sound systems and all these guitars for uh, Jack Cassidy and Phil Lesh. And a, a buddy of mine had one and he had it modified in a Guild Starfire bass that was modified. So we drove out. I came back to New York and I found this ad in the Village Voice and I went down to the Baggies and Night Bob hired me on the spot. So I blame Night Bob for my career. <laughs> I've never asked him this, but is it true that the New York Dolls were the ones who gave them the nicknames of Day Bob and Night Bob? Oh, that's a good question. That was a good question uh, because it, it, it's, it's probably true. If Bob said it, it's true because Bob was a mover and shaker back in those days. I mean, we had amazing parties at Baggies because he used to grab people from Max's Kansas City back then and oh, cool. you know, upstairs at Max's. And, you know, I ran the elevator and there was all kinds of drugs in the elevator back in those days. So it was it was quite a quite a scene. Uh, that was the rehearsal studio uh, prior to to um, studio instrument rattle. It, it, that was the place. And we had Johnny Winter. We had Foghat. We had Donny Hathaway. We had uh, John McLaughlin with Carlos Santana and Larry Young. Uh, Love, Devotion and Surrender. We had everybody and we were renting to everybody. It was like Mecca in, in, uh, in that part of the village. Michael, so at any rate... Go ahead. Before you go, I'm sorry. I, I just, I know if I don't ask you this, I'll forget. You're the first person I think we've ever had on the show that is so intertwined in the New York scene. Can you please explain what it was like at Max's Kansas City? And if Max's Kansas City, CBGBs, and some of the art, larger rock clubs or rock clubs, were they very clicky? Because it seemed like I've always wondered why were the New York Dolls, for instance, so familiar at, Can- at Max's Kansas City and Aerosmith and Iggy Pop and all these different bands. But Kiss was like nowhere to be found ever around those group of musicians. Were they outcasts in comparison to the other New York talent? Well, you're, you're Mickey Ruskin at Max's Kansas City really attracted the best and the brightest of the art scene okay. because that was... Max's Kansas City was mecca for artists. I mean, you'd see, I go in there and see Andy Warhol walking around with cameras and just shooting people without even focusing. He was Scavulo. Um, there was, there were so many interesting things that were, that would become what we then know them as, you know, like Bowie and people like that. Mm-hmm. They were all in the yeah. club, but you wouldn't have recognized them necessarily. Um, Yes. And Kiss Kiss was, you, you know, you got to remember that if you're from the boroughs, if 
if you're from Queens and you're trying to make it in Manhattan, uh, it's not exactly an easy run for, you know, there was a lot of people who, who were starving for their art in Manhattan, living in you know, these really horrible so, places. So, it, so, so it sounds like, part, part, sounds like part of it was just people kind of rolling their eyes because Gene and Paul and the guys in Kiss were not from Manhattan. They were just from, they were across the bridge. Yeah, there was the bridge and tunnel crowd, you know, and, yeah. and and that was it. But you had artists, you know, that was the beginning days of Patti Smith and, uh, you know, the Dolls and, and uh, 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 Serious Trixon and the Motor City Bad Boys and uh, Wayne County or Jane County yeah. uh, before he, he, he made it uh, to Jane. So there was all of that. And it was it was they weren't exactly they weren't exactly part of that art scene they it was too commercial um for the art scene it wasn't as uh underground okay. they weren't, weren't as, as as eclectic so to speak i guess or correct. correct they were just they were basically a cover band with with songs and nobody was really taking them seriously you know, got got nothing to lose. I mean, you know, people weren't really. I mean, even when I saw them, because I was pretty cynical in those days. Even when I saw them at the NFE theater when they were rehearsing, they came in street clothes. We saw the Candelabras. We saw all the the uh, the drum risers. We saw all the the accoutrement, the the big flashing letters, which was really uh, Bill of Coin. Bill Cohen was the genius behind it because he was producing a show called Flipside and, and he was a TV producer. And um, so I saw them in street clothes coming in and they're playing God, God, nothing to lose. And I go, well, okay, yeah, they got nothing to lose. You know, it wasn't a big deal. They didn't have all the big hits. And who wrote the biggest hit? Peter. Yeah. You know, yeah. He wrote Beth. So, you know, and that was Bob Ezrin that produced that one. So, so they weren't really at that point, you know, glam rock hadn't really come through in that way. Alice Cooper had a lot more credibility, you know, because he was really shocking. Um, but these guys, these guys had a monument, monumental strides to get over. Like, in other words, they had to, they had to get past all that. They had to be so big that you couldn't ignore them. And it's exactly what Gene wanted to do. You know, Gene wanted to blow it up big. And, um, it, it, and, and tell me if this is something you would agree with. It seems to me they, they maybe weren't necessarily that concerned with being part of that avant-garde, artsy, click scene in, in New York City. Did they just want to do their own thing and do it their own way and they didn't care that the scene wasn't adopting them. It's exactly not what Gene wanted to do. Gene, Gene, they worked very hard. I mean, I'm not going to take anything away from the guys. I mean, I know Gene told me he had one costume and they were in the back of a van and they had a, it was all leather and they had to wash it out every night. <clears throat> Excuse me. That they were just so they were working their asses off doing it. But Gene didn't want to starve for his art. Gene wanted to go for it. He was going for broke. Otherwise, he wasn't going to do it. 
you know, they sat down to write the most commercial songs that they could think of, come up with ways of doing it and, and presenting it in this, you know, whether it was kabuki or whatever makeup ideas, which made it ageless, which was brilliant because they never got old. So the famous fortune of it was more important than the art end of it, whereas a lot of the folks at Max's Kansas City were immersed more in the artistic side of it. Gene would say, you want art or you want to make money? You know, I asked Gene Gene what his sign was once. He said dollar. You know, I mean, come on. That's Gene. Um, That's the kind of character he is. I mean, genius behind it. I mean, he's a guy who on every, every tour, he knew exactly how many extra seats the promoters brought in. He knew what the drop was every night. You know, nothing got by him. And, and uh, you know, and like I said, Bill Coin was brilliant. I love Bill Coin. I work with Bill Coin not only with Kiss, I work with Billy Idol because I worked on, you know, I did Rebel Yell. So Bill was a genius, you know, and still hasn't gotten the recognition that he should have gotten. Uh, so was Sean Delaney. Crazy as he was, crazy as he was, crazy as as we were after him smoking cocaine the whole night and dropping a Valium in the wire trough underneath the console and going in there with flashlights to look for the last Valium so they can get to sleep. I mean, it was crazy. And um, but geniuses behind it, behind the whole production idea. So we do the NFE theater and uh, this is this showcase. Neil Bogart comes out and says, you know, ladies and gentlemen, kiss. And they come out and they're all in costume. And I had never seen anything like that, you know, with jeans spitting fire, blood, you know, I mean, come on. This is like, you know, I was into Zeppelin and the Stones. I was into cool bands, you know, I mean, to me, these guys weren't cool. They were just like, and I sat there with my eyes open while I don't know. You think? I says the worst thing I've ever seen. He says to me, he says, "But I got your attention." Yeah. Michael, did you freeze up? Must have. Michael, we lost him. Are on my router. Hello. Hello, Michael. There, there we go. You, 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 you froze up there. Where did I? Where did you lose me? Um, uh, that was the worst thing I've ever seen. But I got your attention. <laughs> that was yeah, Bill of Coin, Bill of Coin. So Rocksteady was Rocksteady, a coin management in the press office, and they had and they had marketing and manufacturing that they were doing because they were making all kinds of merchandise, and that's what they figured they. They were the modern day geniuses behind us. He was like the Jeff Bezos of modern management. You know, Bill figured out every which way to Sunday to figure out how to how to maximize uh, opportunities with this group, and they did it. I mean, he just you know they had the Kiss dolls, they had the comic books, you know, the Kiss Army. Gene knew how to control crowds. They knew what they, they were doing on stage. They had a way of communicating with their audiences and building this fan base way before anybody else. I mean, they learned, they learned from what Brian Epstein had done. I mean, Gene's a good student. Gene's a really good student. He knows exactly where he goes with what he does. He's so purple. 
pistol on that. You know, he doesn't always do it in the, the most congenial way. You know, he's right. pretty abrupt, right. but you know, he knows he knows what he wants and he asks for it. He's not shy. Can I I want I want to get a per this is a personal take of how you feel about this. And the reason I'm going to ask this question is, is it kind of shadows all of our lives in junior high school and high school. And I'd love your your take on this. Growing up as a KISS fan, now I grew up with Led Zeppelin. And I like them. I think they're a great band. They're just a different animal. So you being at the age that you were at the time, you're describing all of this and saying that, look, I'm a, I'm a Led Zeppelin fan. And I look at Kiss and you're like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen. Was it because you were paying so much attention to everything that was going on that you didn't hear the music? Because Mark always says, look, if you're not a Kiss fan, it's because you've never heard any of the songs. I believe there's an element of truth to that. So from your perspective as not only working in the industry, but also as a fan of music, why was Led Zeppelin so great? And then this was like, what the hell? Well, I had had a, you know, I was a musician as well. And, and the okay. thing is, for me, for me, it was about the bands I were in, I was into at the time were, um, I was into The Dead. I was into The Jefferson Airplane. Mm -hmm. I was into Crosby, Stills and Nash, a lot of West Coast stuff and yeah. a lot of, a lot oh, of stuff in the UK. Right. So, I mean, I didn't have an appreciation for the power pop side of what they were looking to accomplish. I look at it now through a different lens, of course. You know, I mean, it, it's completely different and, and seeing, you know, in retrospect, uh, what they accomplished and how they got there. And how they maintain to keep, you know, how they maintain their image over the years and, and to uh, keep their value up of their brand. I mean, that's well, a whole different conversation today, you know. Oh, absolutely. In fact, I was having a conversation with someone over the weekend about Kiss and music in general. And, and he was saying, well, Kiss is awful. And Yes is wonderful because Yes can play circles around Kiss. And, and I said, that's like saying that this pizza that's deep dish is better than thin crust because they use more dough. It's, it's personal choice and taste, but the level of musicianship shouldn't be a relevant factor in whether the song is good or not. But then maybe for people that love prog rock, it is. Well, Tommy, you just nailed it because you know what? Alan White can play, you know, a billion paradiddles in a row. Doesn't mean yeah. he can play Ringo. You know what I mean? Yeah. Look, I, as a musician too, that always made me laugh out loud. <laughs> it's about songwriting. I'm with you, Tommy. I, I don't understand. Again, just being a Kiss geek, I, I don't understand that the Grateful Dead can sit for a half an hour and jam. I always said, and? <laughs> I never understood it. Mike, my, 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 Michael, let me, is, you know, and, and we always say on the show, timeline is so important mm -hmm. because for a lot of people, what we're talking about right now is hard to imagine because, you know, we're 2023 and Kiss is what they are now. But back in 1973, was part of the issue still just the makeup, the visual, where people were just not used to seeing that extreme in a band where all of a sudden people were like, what is this? These are just a bunch of clowns on stage. These are characters. And stop listening to the music right after the visual hit them. Because, again, 
prior, you know, yes, there was glam rock, but Kiss took what glam and Alice Cooper and the New York Dolls did and went to something that had never been seen before in 1973. Was that part of the, the hurdle that had to be overcome? I think that's part of it. I also think, too, that there was a messaging um, that was different. You know, all the stuff that we were listening to, the dolls were listening to Personality Crisis or we're listening to, you know, Live Dead and St. Stephen. They were, you know, everything was deep lyrically. It wasn't it wasn't really pop lyrics per se. Uh, what what Kiss did was sort of make a throwback to pop records of the 50s and the 60s in terms of lyric writing and adapt that because, you know, uh, if you ask Gene, Gene's pretty good as a, as a musical historian. So he understands, you know, people like Bob Crew and producers like that. And um, uh, he, he gets he gets the pop side. And what he did was, what he and Paul did was, I mean, it, everything was based on the Beatles. You know, it was based, it was based on Lennon and McCartney, I mean, or, or the Glimmer Twins. It well, and, the, and on, you know, they've, all, they've always said that from the get-go. They said, we are the heavy metal Beatles. Right, exactly. I mean, even, even Keith Richards, well, I, I did a movie with Keith Richards. I did Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll, the Chuck Berry story. And, and. Keith uh, told me the story and how Lennon and McCartney came in a club one night and saw them and sat down and wrote a song for them called I Want to Be Your Man. And we looked, he said, we, Mick and I looked at him and he said, we can do that. <laughs> you know, it's not, not that hard. Well, Gene and Paul, they decided that, you know, they had that, they had that communication with one another, writing about subject matter that they understood. And um, somehow or another, it came out in, in all these, these, these records, and they just were prolific. They just kept writing and writing. Can, can I, can I, I want to stop you just for a second, because I love that movie, Hail, Hail, Rock and Roll. I love Chuck Berry. Uh, how close were you? Uh, I've always wanted to know, how bad did Keith Richards take to the fact that Chuck seemed annoyed with him at times? <laughs> I, I, I didn't know that this was going to come up. I, I want to know that because it because that was his idol. You know what I mean? That, that, yeah. What can you can you shine a little light on that? This is just like sure. I, for one I'd, be, now. I'd be happy. I've always to. wanted to know that. I have, I'd be happy to. Uh, I was working with Keith on um, I was mixing a track that was produced by uh, Keith and Steve Lillywhite. Uh, we were doing the. Uh, single, mixing the single for Jumping Jack Flash from the film. And he came in one day and he said, uh, he says, I got this, this movie I'm going to do about Chuck Berry. He says, you know, he says, not a lot of money. And he says, but this is my payback to Chuck Berry for all the money the Stones made up for Chuck Berry's music. I said, that's pretty righteous, you know, I, to myself. And I said, I'd be, you know, I'd be honored to do it. And um, yes, uh, what you saw in the movie was just a bit of how incorrigible uh, Chuck could be. He was very, very difficult, um, uh, especially when we got down to, to Wentzville to Berry Park and um, he, in the rehearsals and things like that. He, you saw the stuff with Alan Rogan with the guitar amps and all that stuff. And, and I, have a, I have a very fuzzy picture of what we did because um, 
Keith uh, and I talked about it. I brought him in the truck to listen to Chuck's amp from the rehearsals. He had a big dual showman amp. If you know the dual showman, it's two channels and Chuck's got that stereo, you know, 355 and he flips it out in stereo and it's just louder than everything. He's got the amp on 10 and the guitar on two. So it's all noise. And uh, so Keith came to me before the show and says to me, he says, Marco, we have to use subterfuge. I said, what do you mean? He says, we're going to put a boogie amp underneath the stage and we're going to split his guitar off and stick it in there. So that's what I did. I put an amp under the stage and, you know, uh, with, with the crew and put a mic on it. And that's how we recorded them. So, yeah, uh, he did it. He did it for his idol. He did it out of respect for his idol. And uh, I, it, I was just watching going, is he going to flip? Is he going to like, because uh, you could, the tension was just noticeable. And uh, well, you know, what happened was that Chuck had been playing these songs for so many years that he forgot the original keys that he played them in. So when the rehearsals with Clapton and, and uh, Chuck Lavelle and Steve Jordan and Joey Spompanato, uh, Keith brought in all the original recordings. <laughs> oh, and Johnny Johnson, who was also, you know, the, the piano player, who was just phenomenal. Uh, Keith, uh, excuse me, um, Chuck took over Johnny Johnson's trio. And uh, when they, when Muddy Waters found them in the, uh, in the Cosmo Hall over in East St. Louis, and um, Johnny retired, became a bus driver. <laughs> And then he came out to do this. But yeah, he he was, Chuck could make it just very difficult. He was very funny about the money. Anything you wanted to do, you had to pay him cash. He, he was just, he was just really tough. If um, I could have asked him one question, I would have asked Chuck Berry the time that they performed with, he performed with, with John Lennon and Yoko and she's screaming yeah. into the yeah. microphone with that freaking look on his face. It, he had to have been just like, what in the hell is this? All you can think about, which he and Gene probably have in common and think about how many people were going to see him and how much money he was going to make. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you saw it in the movie. He had, he had a garage full of Cadillacs, you know, I mean, he yeah. was, and he bought real estate. He, he wasn't, he wasn't, he was very wise in, in a lot of things that he did, but he was very crazy too. He was just, you know, um, which you didn't see in the movie. And it's in the Taylor Hackford uh, extended box set. We scouted a prison where he did three years for the manor. And um, Chuck put on an impromptu show with the prison band. And we had like three or four women with us, including Stephanie Bennett, who's the producer, and Jerry Taylor's assistant, um, Chuck's daughter, who just got out of an institution, and, and Chuck's girlfriend who came in a miniskirt and spiked heels to this person. Ooh. And we did the show, <laughs> and Chuck, Chuck had her, his girlfriend sit at the edge of the stage with her high heels and short skirt, and all these guys that you know were horny as hell. It was crazy, man. And, and, and she was just as wild, too, because when we left, uh, we were all parting ways at the uh, guard gate. And um, she, she came out and she said to us, we're, all the women that we were with were in shock. And she says, I never felt so wanted by so many men. And I said, oh, Jesus. <laughs> the captive audience. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> really? You know? Wow. 
so so, it, so, so, so I was going to say, Michael, so you, you see this showcase performance that KISS puts on. And how does that move forward to you ending up in the studio with Eddie Kramer and KISS? Oh, well, so I worked at the rehearsal studio. Uh, I also was a representative for Alembic Music Instruments on the East Coast. And then um, I was doing construction work. I was building rehearsal studios. And uh, there was a gentleman by the name of Michael Moskowitz who was in Brooklyn. I was living in Brooklyn at the time in a Park, Park Slope section of Brooklyn. And um, um, Michael said to me one day, he says, he says, you work really hard. He says, would you be interested in working in a recording studio? I said, yeah, you know, why not? Um, so he hooked me up with a guy who was a chief engineer uh, at a place called Broadway Recording at 1697 Broadway, which is now where Stephen Colbert is. It was on the ninth floor in the Ed Sullivan Theater Building. And um, uh, Broadway Recording was the home to uh, a guy named Pat Jakes, J-A-C-Q-U-E-S, and a woman named Fran White. And um, he brought me in to be a night maintenance tech. And uh, it was a, it had two studios. And um, Pat Jakes was a fabulous R&B engineer. And then there was another guy named Herb Greenbaum, who was an amazing Latin engineer. So in the daytime, we had people like Tony Orlando and Dawn. And at night, and Ellie Greenwich and Jeff Barry and, you know, all these luminaries in the music industry that, at the time. This would have been early 70s. And then... Um, and then we'd have Eddie and Charlie Palmieri, Hector Lavoe, Marchito, El Gran Combo, all this stuff from the South Bronx that they would come in. And um, so I worked there for almost two years. And then there was a guy named Tom Steele who ran a mastering lab where they would cut lacquers uh, for vinyl on the top floor of Frankfurt Wayne Mastering, which came out of Philadelphia. And uh, Tom caught me in the elevator one day. He says to me, listen, your boss is going to go out of business. He says, there's an opening at Electric Lady Studios. He said, would you want to interview? I said, yeah, love to. Because I was looking to work for a producer engineer. I wanted to work for Eddie Kramer. And um, I, he said, go down, make an appointment, call this person and make an appointment. So I called the studio manager, Scorpio. And... Uh, she said, you got to make an appointment with Bruce Staple, who was the studio director at the time. And Bruce was an interesting guy because Bruce was a guy who made all these great records of Tommy James and the Shondells. He had Allegro Studios for a long time. And then he, this guy had gone through many different versions of himself. He was out and out hippie, acid guy. And when I met him, he was practicing to be a Jehovah Witness. So it was all pretty interesting. Um, Took me three interviews. And finally, he said to me, you want the gig? And I said, yeah. He said, can you start tomorrow? I said, no, I got to give my employer two weeks notice. And uh, the rest is history. So I started there November 5th, 1975 at Electric Lady. Hey, and Mike, I got to run real quick. I got a work thing I got to take care of. Just so you know, when I get up. We'll, 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 we'll continue on. on. Nice we'll to meet you. Continue on, Michael. He'll be yeah, back. So, He'll be back. So, so. Um, yeah, so it was November 5th, 1975. That was my start date. 
And then the first album I worked on there full uh, as a second engineer, I worked on Chick Corea's uh, The Leprechaun. Uh, it was, the B room was for mostly all the, uh, at that time, fusion jazz guys, because that was the cheaper room. And all the rock guys were in the, uh, in the A room. So, and great engineers worked there. I mean, uh, Dennis Mackay, um, uh, Mike Stone, who I worked, later worked a lot with because he worked with Queen. Um, but Eddie was the guy I wanted to work with, and Eddie was the toughest guy to work for. You know, you had to have, you had to bring your A game with Eddie, because Eddie didn't suffer fools gladly. He was just a real tough guy, and uh, there was a lot of fear going on. But there was there was a bunch of us there um, at that time. Also, who I should mention here, if you, one day you should talk to him is Dave Whitman because he he uh, recorded Dress to Kill, and um, yeah, we would love to talk to him. Yeah, Dave is, David is amazing. He's just a great guy. When you uh, were at, during your tenure at Electric Lady, because, I mean, even a kid in Minnesota reading about all of this stuff, I mean, going all the way back to Hendrix is the earliest artist I remember that had that um, tie to Electric Lady. Did you have people like just coming and pounding on the door all the time trying to just come in not even musicians yeah. so how do you handle it you just have a locked door and you don't let them in or what how did how did you guys manage that so you've seen you've seen the um the old electric lady with the rounded front yeah mm -hmm. yeah okay so when you walk walked into the doorway at 52 west 8th street on your left would be a round porthole with wired glass and a camera and a microphone. So that's how people would ring the doorbell and there would be a receptionist downstairs. So most of the crazy activity would happen at night. And there was this really amazing guy named Louis Velez. Wonderful, wonderful Puerto Rican kid, man. He, he was just great. He knew how to work it. He knew exactly how to deal with it. He was there from the days of, um, I believe he was there from the days of Michael Jeffries when, when Jeffries was still alive. And, and um, oh God, um, trying to think of all the other names. Um, uh, names that come to me. Because there had to be Kiss fans who just were like, "Hey, we want to see J.D. Paul." Oh yeah, well there were there were Hendrix fans too. I mean that was the yeah. thing. Uh, people were still looking for. Uh, I walked in one day and and uh, I was working. I was working with Jimmy Miller. The Jimmy Miller worked with the Stones. Uh, I walked in working with Peter Aykroyd, Dan Aykroyd's brother, and who was waiting at the doorway when I walked in trying to get in was Steve Winwood. So, I mean, it was always, I mean, I saw, um, I worked with Joni Mitchell there. Uh, you know, so many people would come in and there were entourages of people that would just, be waiting but louis handled it diplomatically because you never knew who was who right and you didn't want to you didn't want to insult anybody and you had to be really really careful in how you handle it and um and, and louis used to run cover for me all the time too you know if i had a girlfriend coming in or something like that he would always run cover he never knew what was going on because we had at that point 
the third floor was Michael Jeffrey's old apartment. Mm. And Jimmy had a Jimmy Hendrix had an apartment down the block uh, on 8th Street. So we had access to that too. Um, so when we would do these long sessions, I mean, I did one session I did with Kiss. I mean, God, I must have worked 72 hours straight. Jesus. Yeah. A hundred hour weeks were nothing, you know. And I got I got paid five dollars an hour as a second engineer when I worked, ten dollars an hour when I worked with an outside engineer. And imagine how much time you would have sped up if you had Pro Tools back then. Or would that you know, have not made a difference? Yeah, but you know what? I got to tell you something. Um, so I don't know if you know my further on in my career, I was vice president of Capital Records Studios for eleven years out here in LA. Okay. And, you know, I worked a lot in analog. And there's nothing that sounds like analog. Those KISS records sound oh, yeah. like in analog uh, and the way they were recorded and the quality in which they were recorded. Um, I thought the biggest those, shift is when everything shifted to digital. And because I watched that sound studio documentary and all of a sudden all the business just dried up and everyone started going to these, you know, analog or not analog all these uh, digital studios and it sounded like that really kind of put a dent in the recording industry for a while not to get too far off track but well you know listen the recording business listen i was a pro at the recording business i ran and built the biggest studio in the united states at uh, excuse me at capital studios nothing was bigger than capital studios in its heyday uh when that king cole was there then it died down in the 70s a little bit. You know, I got there in the 80s. Uh, you know, Bob Seeger was still working in there, but the studio had uh, suffered. But when people were building their home studios, which became the advantage to the record label because they could finance, they could have fixed costs. If you built the studio and you paid for it for the artist, as long as they cranked out, what you needed and made their commitments on their on their contracts. That's all they really wanted, you know, put out good records. But the studio business got compromised, yes, when people were building the home studios. Could Pro Tools have helped that then? I don't know. Did it, did it hurt it? The home studio scene out here in LA was a problem. Um, but without, you know, getting too deep into the weeds on the studio business, it's all, it's like running a hotel or an airline. It's all about utilization. You've got to keep the rooms booked. Yeah. We had 24-7 running at Electric Lady. 24-7. We barely could do turnarounds. Wow. I was, was working, I was working with Eddie Kramer doing uh, Brownsville Station, Martian Boogie Record. And at night, Peter Frampton was coming in with Chris Kimsey to do Frampton Comes Alive. It was just, it was just nonstop. You know, uh, I would say that must have been I know it's a lot of work, but that must have been so exciting, Michael, to work with all these different legendary artists and with all these different types of genres of music must have been amazing. It was. I mean, I, I still have my timesheets. Wow. I still have all the electric lady timesheets. I have them stored in a locker. And, uh, you know, I look back on, on the kind of stuff I was doing. and I, I started clocking my hours and it's just crazy. But yeah, it, it working working with historical people. Uh, I worked on Song Remains the Same, the film with Eddie, uh, on Jimmy 
Jimmy Page's 33rd birthday. And, uh, and he came in with uh, Bonham and John Paul Jones. Wow. So, yeah. So it was, you never knew. Why would I go home? Right. <laughs> you might miss something. We should Hell really yeah. get Eddie. We should get Eddie on this show. I met him a number of years ago. He was in town here in Minneapolis recording uh, a band called the Odd Fathers, uh, which unfortunately didn't take off, but they were very, very good. And I got to watch him work for a day and I found it to be just fascinating how he put the song together. Eddie was a master at that, you know, Eddie, Eddie at that point, uh, uh, he, when I was working with him, he was, he was legendary. So, you know, it was, it's always great when you have someone like that. Um, I work with him on Love You Live uh, when Keith was under house arrest in Toronto. And I was working with, with uh, Mick when Mick and Bianca were having their rows in the studio, you know, I mean, it was, it was wild. Did you um, ever get a chance to work with uh, any of the Beatles? Uh, yes, uh, but not here, not an electric lady uh, okay. at, at Capitol because I met the three living ones. I didn't know John. Okay. Uh, John, I never met. Uh, that was more the world of Jimmy Iovine and Jack Douglas. They were working with John over at Record Plant. Yeah. Uh, the only thing that John really, I remember John did, and you should talk to Dave Whitman about because I think he worked on that session, was Harry Maslin recorded Fame with David Bowie with John. Mm, very that cool. Was in, that was in Electric Lady Studio A. Um, but, you know, uh, I, I recorded an interview with George Harrison for the 30th anniversary of All Things Must Pass. It was the year he, year he died. Um, so it would have been about 2001. Um, and I met Paul. A lot Paul of people think Matt. that's his masterpiece. You know, listen, they were all brilliant. Uh, I see Ringo out here from time to time. Uh, he's got his all-star band. Yeah. Um, Paul was always personable and great and he and Linda used to come in all the time at Capitol. But they, you know, they were the darlings of EMI. You know, there was yeah. I worked I worked for EMI for 11 years. So our sister studio was at we wrote. Well and, and we um, when, when we had uh, David Leaf on a month or so ago, he had written a book. He's friends with um uh Brian Wilson. And mm -hmm. told some fascinating stories about working with him. So that must have been great to be at Capitol and work with, you know, members of the Beach Boys. I mean, I just can't get over what a great career you had. I worked on Orange Crate Art with Brian and Van Dyke Parks. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah, Van Dyke Parks. Had, I love Van Dyke. Yeah. Van Dyke. Did you know that Van Dyke and Stephen Stills were roommates? No, but it seems like back in that day, I mean, the only reason I, the only way, the only way I know how to piece some of that together is looking at Henry Dietz's photos. Oh, Henry Diltz is great. Diltz, I'm sorry, Diltz. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Henry, he, Henry, know, love Henry. Yeah. Cause he would, you know, post photos. Oh, here's us in Laurel Canyon. And it's like, you know, Mickey Dolan's from the monkeys and Jimi Hendrix and all the, and I'm like, it's just, wow. They all knew each other. Well, Henry, Henry, Henry was a musician who chronicled that in, in photographs. I mean, he was just brilliant. 
uh, in yeah. the way he did it because he was just like I, I actually I took a picture of Henry with his camera at a at a at a, re, a capital reunion and he had two girls who wanted to take a picture with him and he said, Michael here take my camera I said Henry this is your camera he said what do I do he's just point and shoot that's all I do so you know he's he, he's an interesting guy, but Van Dyke was great. Van Dyke told me the story of how the Buffalo Springfield got their name. And? He said, yeah, well, what they were doing is they were paving Fountain Avenue out here in Hollywood. And um, it was a broke, there was a tractor with a broken name on it. And it was the Buffalo Springfield. It was a, an old tractor. It's called the Buffalo Springfield. Really? Because I've yeah. always wondered, how do you, you know, how did they pick that name? That's it. That's it. That's and I, I've been working with the Stills family now for the last seven years, producing concerts for Light Up the Blues. 2018, we did the Dolby Theater. We did Stephen, Neil, Burt Backer, Judy Collins, Cheryl Crow, Patti Smith, Beck, uh, Chris Stills, our backup band with the Heartbreakers, first gig after Tom, and Jack Black was the host. And we raised money for Autism Speaks. That's that's so cool. Yeah, Cheryl yeah. Crow, absolutely adore her. There's so many in there that you mentioned that are so iconic and uh, just amazing. You know, I wow, that's I I had no idea. I mean, I didn't know to the depth and level of of your um, connection to all of this. That's just amazing because these are all the the people. So many of them are are artists that I loved growing up because I had older brother and older sisters who had all of those records. So I'm five years old and I'm listening to Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and I'm listening to all that stuff from the sixties and seventies. So it's like a walk down memory lane. Well, thank God. Thank God you had an older brother who could share that with you because it was a very serendipitous time. I mean, that's a time of music that, you know, we won't see, you know, I grew up at the tail end of, um, of fifties rock and roll. The first mm -hmm. record my parents ever bought me, rock and roll record, was Blue Suede Shoes by Elvis Presley. So, Mine was the Eddie Cochran record. Wow. Yeah, yeah. I, I know. And then the people next door, they had bought a collection of records from a DJ. So we wow. just sat and listened to the 50s and 60s stuff forever. You know, uh, come on, everybody. It was a 45. Nice. Uh huh. And so that, and that's another thing we talk about on this show, because like, obviously this is a Kiss podcast. And we need to talk more about Kiss. But for me, music is music. If it's good, it's good. And that's also what's changed. Because back in the '60s and '70s, you'd see these bills with all these different artists. And I would go to the store as a kid, usually Target, because they had more records than a lot of others here in Minneapolis. And you'd buy the 45 because you like the song. You never thought that, oh, okay, this is America or this is Deep Purple or it was the song was great. Now it seems like when you go to a festival, it's all heavy metal or it's all country or it's all 90s, you know, new wave or it's this or it's that. There's no mixing of, of artists and bands anymore. And so I think people get cheated out of hearing different types of music. Well, when you look at the charts from back in those days, you could see that there were R&B acts mixed with rock and roll acts, mixed with jazz acts, mixed with pop. I mean, you know, I, I was so blessed to be able to be in a car on a Sunday with my parents and listening to AM radio and be able to hear all that stuff all at once. Uh, it got segmented out because record labels were trying to focus marketing and things like that. And they started yeah. segmenting a lot of things like 
I mean, the first concert I ever went to was uh, there's a place in New York in the Bronx called Freedom Land, an Americana theme park. And the uh, the act I saw was um, uh, headlining was the Everly Brothers with the opening act. There's this kid named Little Stevie Wonder. Wow. <laughs> wow. And then years later, I got I got um, we were at a um, a record release party here at the House of Blues for Paul McCartney uh, for Run Devil Run, and mm-hmm. um, so Phil Everly's there, and I knew his wife, and uh, we, we got friendly because uh, she was good friends with Paula Salvatore, who was from Sound City. You saw her in the movie. She was the studio manager at the time, and. Uh, so I'm I'm shooting a few drinks back up in the the uh, what do you call it the bar at the House of Blues, and I'm getting a little loopy, and I'm getting really comfortable with uh, um, <laughs> with Phil Everly, and I said, you know, Phil, um, I was I was uh, 13 years old when I saw you, and then my parents waited after the show, and I got to meet you and and your brother. And he, he was a little loopy and he says to me, he said, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was in a, in a, in a sweet way, you know, yeah. but everybody, you know, you got to remember that Everly brothers were the, the vocal uh, icons of the time to get that type oh. of harmony. That's what, that's what Paul and, um, and John wanted to do this the same thing that Simon and Garfunkel wanted to do. And in their own way, Gene and Paul did their their own version of it, you know. Um, I mean, we used to sit and record background vocals with those guys. I mean, with Gene, you know, if Gene would play piano, I'd record the left hand and the right hand. You know, it was always, you know, we figured out a way to make it work. Um, Eddie would be out there recording tracks with the band and banging a cowbell on a microphone in a booth, making sure they kept Peter in time. Um, well, there was my, always my, something. My, Michael, let's let's talk about that. So, what was the first Kiss um, album that you worked on with Eddie Kramer at Electric Ladyland? It would have been Love Gun. Yeah, it would have been Love it, Gun. And 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 when you, I want to try and get into your mind a little bit. So when you found out you're going to be recording "Kiss" with Eddie Kramer, are are you thinking back to, oh God, I saw these guys when they did that showcase, and <laughs> you know, I, I you know you I was I wasn't impressed, I wasn't blown away, and now I'm in the studio with them. I mean, or had things changed over those few years that you had now grown to have a little more understanding and respect for them? Take us through when you found out. It's like, okay, these guys in makeup are coming in and I'm going to be recording them. And, you know, is this just a gig or are you kind of like, oh, this is kind of going to be cool? So I will tell you this. I've only seen them three times with the makeup. Okay. I saw them at the showcase presentation. I saw them at Madison Square Garden. And then I saw them at the Super Bowl in 1999. When yep. I produced Big Bad Voodoo Daddy and they headline, uh, Big Bad Voodoo Daddy headline with Gloria Stefan and Stevie Wonder. And the, the Kiss was playing the warm up show. 
the, the pre-show I got great, before, yeah. the pre-show the pre-show and i got great I, so i walk in and they're all in costume and they're on stage with tony randall tony randall like jack klugman tony randall the odd couple mm-hmm. it's the weirdest scene i've ever seen i got pictures of this i've got stills of this somewhere of of um felix unger in front of the costume kiss on stage in front of a microphone with him going like this <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's hysterical that's uh, and, fantastic and, well and, how did he end up there i have no idea you know they put all these crazy shows together it was the joe robbie stadium in fort lauderdale yeah. it was the atlanta falcons and the denver broncos so it was you, you know I mean, it's a military operation. Have you ever been at Super Bowl and backstage for all that? It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. It's amazing. Radio City Productions put it on that year. So, so there I am standing at it and, and Gene, Gene and Paul say, what the hell are you doing here? I said, I, said, I came to see you, of course. And uh, so, so Tony Randall's making this announcement. I don't even know if it's online anywhere. I really wonder there was something that, uh, you know, with with Kiss and Tony Randall. But, you know, the guys were always gracious. And that was the only the only time. So getting back to your question. So by the time they were coming in, I I turned pro. I mean, my my focus was um, it's it's about it's about the music. It's about the recording. I have to, I'm there, if I'm there working with Eddie, I can't be thinking about this other stuff. I've got to be focused on what I'm doing, you know. Um, prep, preparation, no matter who they were, who came in. No matter what you thought of the artist, your job was to get a good recording. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. It was there to be there for Eddie because yeah. I had to make Eddie look good. And, and even if Eddie made mistakes, it was my fault. So, you know, you know, it's it's uh, uh, it's what it's the price you pay. It's the humility that you have to represent in the room. And uh, and the guys knew me. I mean, they were they were OK. Um, it was it was a crazy time. It was a crazy time. Uh, the craziest project, I think, was Kiss Alive, too. We were working nonstop, nonstop. And and. Uh, Eddie was going through some personal stuff at the time and it made it even tougher. And he and I were having a tough time together. So, well, you know, and, and with love gone and into alive too, you know, that's, that's what's sort of been described as that's the super kiss. That's when they were, they were huge. They, you know, everybody knew of kiss, but that's also when, the internal band members were starting to butt heads, split apart. You know, there were ego issues, Gene and Paul versus Ace and Peter. Were you sensing that? Were you seeing that going on? I think what was going on, you know, look, uh, Gene and Paul never did drugs. You know, they were clean as the day is long. They, they, they had low tolerance for that. And, um, it made it difficult when other people were not handling it well, you know, made it, made it difficult. And, um, it's unfortunate. It's unfortunate the way things turn out because, you know, 
in retrospect, when we look at um, uh, drug addiction and, and those problems and knowing that it's, it's a self-diagnosed illness and it's very, very tough. Uh, it wasn't that awareness with these guys. For Gene, Gina was a business. And Gene, you had to, you had to, you know, live up to it. And uh, if members weren't holding their own, he wasn't he wasn't tolerating it. So there was low tolerance there. And you know, uh, Ace, God bless him, brilliant. You know, I worked on Rocket Ride on the mix of that with with uh, with Eddie. Um, uh, again, Peter Peter was such a sweetheart. I knew his wife really well, Lydia, and um, you know, they just weren't having it. They just weren't having it. Gene was about the business and about writing the songs and about producing. Uh, if you saw the Beatle documentary, the Peter Jackson documentary, you see what Paul McCartney did. Paul McCartney was the driving force. They would have done probably a third of what they had accomplished if, if it wasn't for Paul. Paul was always the one pushing for more and more and more. And we wouldn't have the body work that they did. And I think Gene was that way. You know, I think Gene really made that happen. What, what do you recall um, in the Love Gun sessions of recording Ace's first vocals, lead vocals? Shock me. Um, let me see if I remember now. I'm sorry. I don't know. If, I don't, you know, Eddie, Eddie would always set the stage, you know, because we would always set it up. So that way you had to get Ace on a good day. You know, you yeah. had to get him. for anything he did, you had to get him on a good day. And then there was there was also ringers that came in, not necessarily for vocals, but, you know, uh, you know, Bob Kulik was a big part of that. Yep. Way before Bruce, you know, Bobby Bobby Kulik. Um, who did he play? Uh, I'm trying to remember the song on um, Alive Two. He he was he was involved. Larger than life. Larger than the, life. The, That's him. The, the 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 new tracks on side four of Alive Two is where. He would have been involved in yeah larger than life i heard bob do that and bob was so methodically exact and just always would build solos and ideas and things you know um ace was ace was like straight from the hip he shoot from the hip man you know whenever he did it so working with whether it was vocals or whether it was guitar you want to make sure you got him on a good day set him up make sure that he was comfortable make the lights the right way and you had to perform. So you had to set them up as if it was a live situation. For were, were, were you witness to any issues where Ace learned that Bob Kulik played the track instead of him or somebody else did something and, you know, he didn't take it well? No, no, I never saw any of that. That would have been, that would have been with the band or would have been private. They never, they never really got into any of that stuff in the studio. I got to say, um, I've been in situations where bands have had knockdown drag outs in the rooms, but he, not this, not those guys. Um, Gene was not, 
uh, Impul, they didn't they didn't show a lot of emotion or anger or anything like that in the studio. They were all about the business. Gene wouldn't want it. Look, knowing Gene, he wouldn't want to waste the money on the studio film. You know, that's the way he would look at it. He came in there, they came in for a specific reason. He's down to business, you know, no bullshit, you know, straight ahead. Was 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 Kiss or more specifically Gene and Paul really following Eddie Kramer's lead, or was Gene and Paul having more influence on Eddie Kramer? You know, how how was the producer to band relationship there? I wasn't involved in any of the pre-production, you know, that would have been all done in the studio. They would go and rehearse uh, and, and, and work stuff out and come in prepared. You know, they knew what they wanted. Gene always knew what he wanted. It's very directed. I mean, I can't, you know, Gene has his, his, his issues, you know, um, I've had some funny stories with Gene at two o'clock in the morning, go out to Sarge's Deli. We go up to a kosher deli uptown, you know, and we come back and he'd see some girl on the street and he'd look at her and he'd be in his, he'd be in his shoes, he'd be in his boots, you know, with the, the lifts in them, you know, the big platform shoes. Mm-hmm. And I break his balls all the time. I'd say, Gene, Jesus Christ, wrong your money. You can't buy shoes that fit, you know? <laughs> and then he'd see, and then he'd see he'd see this girl on the street, and he'd look at her and he'd say, "Name," <laughs> and she she would like you know, yeah. All right, come with me. <laughs> he bring her down. He said, "Call me in an hour." <laughs> he put him in the tape copy room. <laughs> he was, and he was he was a character. Paul was never like that though. Paul was always a sweetheart. Paul, Paul was always the you know. Uh, Congenial and, and sweet. Uh, but mostly it was Paul and Gene. I spent the most time with those guys in the studio. Which makes sense from what we've heard about history-wise. They're really the ones who were driving this thing forward. Not that Peter and Ace's um, you know, contributions weren't important, but it always, from what I had read in the past, Gene and Paul were the ones who were always there kind of involved with what was going on yeah well the thing is with 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 ace ace was struggling a lot ace was struggling a lot he had his demons and he had to deal with them and and gene and paul had to you know uh sort of cover not cover up but they had to they had to cover manage they had to manage it they had to manage expectations you know very tough um but, but Ace was always as sweet as the day is long, you know, very gifted, brilliant artist as well. His, his drawing was, was amazing. You know? Yeah, it's just unique and different. And, and that's for me, again, you know, like we were talking about earlier, how you, you pick and choose. That's why I always think when someone says, who's the best rock guitar player? It's a silly question because to some people, they'll say Jimi Hendrix. But then there'll be someone else who might say, uh, you know, Malcolm Young of ACDC because he plays one chord and everyone knows who it is. So Mm -hmm. how do you argue the point one way or another? I think it's just personal taste. Were there any bands from the 70s that you had had heard or did any sessions with that never really made it 
big, but you're like, God, I really thought these, this band or this artist was going to do something. Yeah. I mean, you know, there were Canadian bands like April wine uh, yeah. who had opened up for um, the stones up in El Macambo. There mm -hmm. were, um, and I had worked with them with Miles Goodwin. Uh, there was another band called Trigger that was yep. based out of, um, we had worked with, with Corky Stasiak and Dennis Ferranti, and they were, there was sort of a side hustle project at a record plant and they came down to Electric Lady. Um, you know, I took the gig at Capitol because I wanted to find why bands I thought were good didn't do well. You know, I didn't want to take a, a, a studio director position per se. I still want to make records, which I did. Uh, John Butcher. Yep. John Butcher was another one. I yep. I had demos of him and I chased him like crazy to try and sign him personally when I was at Electric Lady. And, um, you know, he was out of Boston and, and I wanted to record him. And then Spencer Proffer wound up with him, with the John Butcher Axis. Um, who else? Um, later, later on, you know, during the punk scene, there was a lot of bands like 3D, a few other bands that I thought were really good. I used to go, you know, um, there was another band called Susan, which was with Ricky Bird, who wound up with Joan Jett for Joan years. Jett. Yeah. yeah. And then um, I had worked a lot with... Um, the drummer Tommy Price on a lot of sessions. In fact, uh, uh, I was the one who got Tommy and Billy Idol's band uh, with Steve Stevens. Okay. So, you well, know, these were, you talk about rock guitar players, Steve Stevens is just like killer. Exactly. Yeah, that's my point. There's a lot of people who may not know. I mean, Neil Giraldo with Pat Benatar, I think is unbelievable but he doesn't get a lot of mention in comparison to some of the others that people consider to be iconic, like Eddie Van Halen or, or, um, you know, Randy Rhodes, but let's use, let's use April wine as an example, because I think that is a band at least that had enough, enough traction that a lot of the people who listen to this podcast would know. What do you think happened? What was it about them that halted that? Well, Canadian bands always have a tough time breaking through in the United States. And um, the, the main takeaway for me from my 11 years at Capitol was I used to sit in A&R meetings, marketing meetings. Um, and, and I always wondered why bands I thought were good didn't do well. And it's usually because of management. Okay. Um, Bill Coyne was a relentless manager. Um, Punch Andrews, who manages Bob Seeger. Relentless. Okay, so when I mean, when you when, when you Elliot use those, Roberts. Okay, so when you use those two or three guys, and you say relentless, what does that mean to you versus what the other managers weren't doing? They leverage the record labels. They are they they are as hard as they can be in the deal making process in terms of publishing all okay. the pieces that fit, you know. Which is what what helped Gene and Paul too. I mean, the publishing alone. I mean, just publishing. Uh, they were very very smart about how to handle it all. They didn't give away the store. And when you're working at a major record label, I mean, Casablanca was all new. Would they have Donna Summer? Yep. Right. Those so. People. Yeah, and Neil Bogart was a wild character too. 
I heard stories about sugar bowls and sugar bowls of blow on the on the conference tables, you know. So it was it was party time. Well, but again, Gene Gene could care less about that stuff. He didn't care about the drugs. The reason why why I think they did so well is that Gene had low tolerance for any of that stuff. He wouldn't waste his money on the drugs. Right. You know. Well, I, I, okay, so I want to ask you about just one band, and this is one of my all-time favorite bands, and I know you may not have any type of history with them, but again, I'd love your perspective if you know enough about their career to comment. Cheap Trick, to mm -hmm. me, is one of the greatest American rock bands of all time because they are consistent, they've got great songwriting, they're, they're, they've got hooks and melody, and you think that anyone that would listen to Cheap Trick that likes rock and roll would love them as a band, yet they're playing and and not to to sound negative they're playing to theaters and i always can't quite understand why aren't they playing you know at least basketball arenas on a regular basis what happened you're talking about today now. yeah just Sorry. you know because like i don't understand and i'm not i don't get you too okay uh, people love them and i you know great and they can play stadiums but when I look at their body of work compared to, say, Cheap Trick, Cheap Trick, in my mind, should be where U2 is, and they're not. What's the difference? What am I missing? Um, you know, look, I, I love Robin Zander. Uh, I worked with, uh, when I first came out here, I worked a lot with Richie Zito, who produced big hits for them. Yep. Um, the thing is that, it's about your brand. Today, it's about your brand. I, I don't know what they're doing with how they're managing their social media and how they're keeping their brand alive. Uh, the only way today in order to keep your brand alive is you've got to have, uh, you got to break through in film and television. You have to have a closing, you know, like an end title or a theme song for a TV show or an end title for a film uh, to be able to break through. Um, now, is Cheap Trick mom and dad's band, or is it how can how do they how can they be the kids' band? You know, Good Hendrix point. will Hendrix would translate. Hendrix right. would translate. It, it it his brand would translate today if he was still alive. But you two or REM would be mom and dad's band, wouldn't they? At this point, right? But mom and dad have money to go spend the ticket money for the tickets now, so you know you're going to get anywhere between the 30 somethings to the 60, 70 somethings that are going to go and see, you know, you too, and, and spend all that money. You know, they're not a working class band anymore. Is, uh, is, is, is it, is it possible with someone like cheap trick that over their career, they are a band that had a lot of management and label missteps, a lot of, um, variety in the sound of the band from you know something that was a little more experimental to pure top 40 to hard rock is is that a challenge that band you know again everybody goes hey acdc they've recorded the same album their entire career i know exactly what they're going to sound like cheap trick you know during you know the flame all of a sudden the flame is huge for them but as a diehard Cheap Trick fan, I could sit here and go, well, that's not really Cheap Trick sound. Did mm -hmm. they did they misstep? Did they get 
was it a management issue where you know management wasn't guiding them right and labels were pressuring them the wrong way is that kind of a mixture a big pot that they had to deal with that you know it could be any number of things you know why do what makes a brand evergreen you know how, how do you how do you somehow establish that uh, as a as a artist manager or uh, a record label um you know, it also takes a lot of personal interest from the artists themselves that they have to do a lot of different things in order to stay current, stay valid. Um, you know, I'm trying to think of an, an artist that that still is valid today that was back. I mean, Cheap Trick is still, you know, to me, a, a later band. Um, but it's it's, you know, I saw, okay, I went to um, Desert Trip and I saw uh, Roger Waters. I mean, those shows were ridiculous. I saw The Who, I saw Paul McCartney, I saw Paul McCartney with Neil Young playing together. I saw um, Roger Waters. I mean, they, they used all the staging from Roger Waters. I mean, it was just phenomenal and packed. Packed. I mean, people paid a lot of money for those shows. And, and these artists got paid a lot of money. Uh, can Cheap Trick command that audience? Um, you got to have something current. You got to have something to sell. You got to have something that's, that's, you know, did you, did you, do you have a movie, do you have a song in Avatar or James Bond or something like that? I mean, that's, that's how it works. But isn't Roger Waters for the most part just living off of the Pink Floyd catalog? Because that's how, what it appears to me. Did and you again, see Pink? Did you see Pink Floyd with David Gilmore? Yes. I, well, I've only seen Pink Floyd one time, and it was the Division Bell tour, which was what nineteen eighty eight. That's yeah. the only time I've ever seen because they never tour. Yeah, I saw the Wall. You know, I mean, okay. And that if you've seen if you've seen things like that, and, and the body of work, you know, and it all makes sense. But there are people who who are religious. It's a religion for them. Yes. It's a religion, as it is for Kiss. Yeah, Owen, I'm not saying that, that him living off of, of Pink Floyd is bad. But again, there's another one where, like you said, maybe the mom and dads of that generation will spend the money to, to go see Pink Floyd live. Well, but, well, but you know, know, if, if Trick had a song on the Avatar soundtrack or movie tomorrow, it wouldn't change a fucking thing. Why? It wouldn't. No, I, 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 I agree. And I think, I think what, you know, Michael, you kind of nailed it where you said it's, it's about the brand. And, and I do remember it was a few years ago that, that Gene Simmons made a quote that kisses a brand, not a band. And that kind of freaked out a lot of fans. Like, what are you fucking talking about? You're a band. No, it's a brand. And from a marketing standpoint, when you think about any brand out there, not just music, it's a name that instantly makes you understand what it's going to do, taste like, feel like, without ever acquiring the product, you know exactly what it's going to be. And, and I think with Kiss as a brand, you go to a Kiss concert, you know what you're getting. You know exactly what you're going to get. There's no experimenting going on. If you've got something like The Who or Paul McCartney 
or um, you know any or you know anybody any of these legendary artists. Yeah, they're they're living off of the past, but that's the brand that people instantly know. This is what I'm going to get. This is what it's going to sound like. I know I'm getting a kick-ass concert. I know you know it's not it it, it it's not the who trying to sound like some you know electronic dance band. It's the who. Yeah, and they, I'm and getting they it. I know what I'm getting. It. Their fans are dedicated. And you, you'll, I don't know, maybe you know this. I have some real esoteric information. You know who's a huge Kiss fan? Mm-hmm. Garth Brooks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. He, he'll, he'll stone cold admit it. He, loved, he loves Kiss. So, you know, when you, when you cross culture like that, you know, in, in today's society and, and you, you reach people who you wouldn't expect would really have respect for them uh you're just really it's it's surprising and and it's enlightening so and a lot of these country artists quite honestly are one step away from being pop rock people well yeah that mutt lang changed that yeah with yesterday's rock and roll is today's country Mm -hmm. right which so, makes it but, wrapped up and palatable for everybody because they throw in some fiddle and, you know, changes. But, the- but, you know, again, back to the brand understanding, it's when when rock artists, whether it's Robin Zander of Cheap Trick or Steven Tyler or even Bon Jovi says, I want to go country. Now you're now you're changing your brand. You're right. You know, you're you're you you are definitely risking a complete breakdown of what people think you're going to sound like. And I get that you might want to do that because you think there's a whole new untapped market out there. That's going to give you millions of dollars. But the reality is people are going to go, Steven Tyler, he's not country. That's not his well, brand. His, his yeah, brand, but Robert, his brand, Plant, Robert Plant did I, it. That was who I was going to mention. Robert Plant did it. Probably some the most can. Yeah. Some can class, do it. Right? It's 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 risky. It's it's a it's a challenge. And you know, is it also because somebody like Robert Plant is Robert Plant? He's so freaking big. You know what I was amazed do anything by, he Michael, wants, Michael. You know what I was amazed by is that Robert Plant could have, but chose not to wisely. Back in the mid eighties avoided for the most part the hair metal trappings of what was because all those guys were just aping him in the first place you know david coverdale to the nth degree (laughs) yep plant plant just went you know i'm gonna kind of make more for lack of a better word adult rock and roll or you know what i mean he he did he you know world music everything melded into his his uh is his, his music and uh I, I, again he's one of those guys i love i i and i'm a major zepp fan but i love robert plants all of his solo stuff but that's yeah, robert is, plant again is robert plant i mean he is so freaking yeah. big he's but, so but he big totally, i mean steven tyler totally, doesn't approach nobody approaches that level correct but let's be honest tyler recently when i say within the last you know 15 years or so he wanted to do that with the country. No, I know he wanted, it, but but he's, he just didn't work. It didn't that work. He's real. not. He's not. He is again. I just look at it, and this is just an uh, a fan speaking. 
Robert Plant, the guys in Led Zeppelin, the guys in Beatles, the guys in the Rolling Stones, they're at a whole nother level that basically they can do whatever they freaking want but, but Mike, because they are so big. Now, will it succeed? Mike, it may not succeed, but it's not going to dilute their original brand. That's the crazy part about Mick Jagger. He was never able to be successful outside of the stones. And you never would have. And when I say successful, he, he couldn't, he couldn't, you know, he, on paper, you should go, that guy should probably have the same kind of solo fame as he did in the band, much like Paul, like Paul McCartney did. Paul McCartney was a, you know, obviously uh, went on to be a, a great solo artist. Whereas Jaggers were just kind of, you know, he put them out. Did he have some, some, a few minor hits? Yeah, but his solo career never took off. And it was funny getting back to what our guest was talking about. That always kind of bemused Keith Richards because that was something I think deep down Keith was afraid of. Because if there's anyone who's a stone more than any of them, it's Keith. Keith, what does Keith always say? The only way out of the stones is in a box. You know, he he is the heart and soul of that band. And when they were not getting along in the 90s and even in the 80s, he he was afraid that 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 Mick was going to be successful. And guess what? Mick wasn't successful. And it was that same sort of jealousy, even with Kiss, when Gene was trying to go Hollywood, Paul would snicker all the time about it. Well, it, it, you know, you know, I'll tell you. So I was working with with Keith when he and Mick were feuding. And it was pretty rough. And um, but Keith shared something with me that I'll share here. He said to me, he says, no matter how much we fight, no, how, no matter how much we bicker, because they're like a married couple, you know? And he would say, you put us in a room together, we always come out with something great. Mm -hmm. But so what was a, that feud about, though? Um, or was it a lot of things? Because I remember it. Familiarity breeds contempt. You know, you're 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 in close quarters with people. You're so dependent on one another. You're spending more time with your bandmates than you are with your wife or you know, anybody else. You know, it's 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 going to happen. Yeah. It's going to happen. It's happened to every. You know, who hasn't feuded? I don't know that Paul and 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 Gene have ever had a feud. Paul is oh, so. I, oh, 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 yeah. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, you know, I I I worked with them for about seven years and and you kind of alluded to this in the studio they're very good about keeping that stuff out between of the public them. eye between them you know if if gene and paul will go at it and there have definitely been periods where they here here's an here's an example so tommy talked about during the 80s how gene went hollywood and paul wasn't happy with that i was I was working with Kiss and I, we were at the um, American Bandstand 50th anniversary filming. Okay. And I was there with them and I'm down in the dressing room with Paul and I always try and get a little bit of interviews, some, some audio bits, video bits that I could put up on their website. And for the most part, I know, listen, I can't ask off the wall questions because Gene and Paul, like all musicians, know their story and they stick to their story mm -hmm. but 
this was when Gene was now doing Gene Simmons tongue this and Gene Simmons tongue that, and he was doing solo albums. And I asked Paul, I go, what do you think of Gene doing all this stuff on the side? And he's like, I read this book. I know how it's going to end. (laughs) (laughs) And, and I, and I turned to Paul and I'm like, do you want me to keep that on the record and post that? He goes, yes, post that. So, you know, they, they were, they were butting heads. Paul told me, he goes, you know, he goes, Gene wasn't respecting the legacy of kiss during all of that. Okay. And, and, and he didn't like that, but he's, as he said in that interview, I've read this book before. We've been here before. I know exactly how it's going to end. And it's going to end with Gene Simmons giving up on all these side projects and coming back to his first true love, the band. Of course, because he's the band is the brand. And that's yep. what he's going with. Gene, with Gene, it's follow the money. You know, I mean, respectfully, he, he's, he's focused on that. And he knows what he's doing. You know, thing he'll ask you, how many hits have you had? You know, uh, he's very proud of, of the success that they've had and, and how they achieved it. And as he should be, I mean, it's phenomenal. But, um, yep. you know, I mean, look, he was promoting NASCAR. When did you ever think that Gene would promote NASCAR? You know, yeah, it, it's 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 the craziest thing. But or liquor or liquor, liquor. Or, or marijuana. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. You know, it, it all depends. I mean, uh, he, he's a character. And uh, um, my, my, Michael, what was the so you were there you, you, 73 to 83. What was the last kiss project you worked? Oh, um, uh, alive too. Okay. So was that, obviously we know side four was all new material, but the first three live sides, was there a lot of work in the studio? We would do sweetening, you know, we would, we would, I mean, at that time I was running maybe, uh, let me think about it now, because this is before digital sampling. So I had applause loops. I had, I had uh, maybe four machines in Studio A of Electric Lady with, you know, 50 foot long tape loops that I had with uh, different uh, various audience uh, recordings. And then I had uh, tape delays at another three or four in the studio. So I was running like crazy. And um, that was, it was, it was, it was laborious that way. We had sweetening to do, repairs to make, you know, here and there, um, some vocal fixes, things like that. Uh, Eddie was, I mean, I learned how to do all this live recording sweetening from Eddie uh, and how to make it sound real. Uh, and then Dave Whitman and I worked on it. We, we had a session behind us. We didn't get it finished, so we had to run up to the mix room at the record plant. So... Dave Whitman and I ran up to record plant with Eddie Kramer. I remember we were doing, um, you know, the opening is Detroit Rock City. So we had new explosions. We had a fly in there while. Uh, <laughs> I remember Dave running, running the tape machine and spinning the pinch roller and spinning the roller on the side and just making sure the machine got up to speed so we could get exactly, you know, da 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 da
So how, how much of the basic live tracks that were recorded remained? Oh, the basic live tracks, it depended. You know, uh, what we would do is, or what Eddie would do is he would record the soundtracks. You know, they would play in the theater live and he would have other recordings and takes of the soundtrack. So if he had to match it to what the original was, it was going to match. So I can't remember now, but a lot of that, some of those were, were all the, uh, um, the soundtrack, like you're going into an empty theater and recording. What about the, the, the solo albums? I think earlier you had said you did some work on some of the band yeah, I worked solo on, albums. I worked on Peter's, uh, Peter's jeans. I worked, you know, when you wish upon a star, uh, uh, you know, from the Disney TV show, we were, um, I worked on Peter's and I worked on uh, Paul's. So, but you didn't, you didn't work on any of Ace's, even though Eddie Kramer. The only thing I worked on with Ace is, um, um, I remember Rocket Ride trying to work. I, I, I want to say I might have worked on back in the New York group. Trying to remember that. I have to go back and look at my notes. You know, all the stuff, all the blue work uh, order sheets I had with my, because uh, I had to keep the work order sheets in order to get paid. <laughs> so I mm -hmm. to fill out my timesheet. So I kept them all. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff like that, but I might have, I might have worked on the back of the New York roof too. Amazing. But um, yeah, I mean, again, it was what came in that day and you know, if you had a groove going with the band and everything was working fine, everybody was saying, you know, you're on that date. There were, there were about, um, um, we were just online on Facebook because this whole thing came up. I was on the phone with Eddie about it, uh, about the Van Halen record that he, Gene had done. Oh, yeah. The yeah. demo record. And um, uh it came up and I called Eddie up about it and then we were chatting about it. And then I got in touch with Frankie D'Agosta because um, Frankie had worked on that with, uh, with Eddie and Ed, you know, that was, it was all true. You know, we we're trying to figure out where, where it'd be, uh, if it was myth or fact, you know, how that happened. Because uh, Gene was on Howard Stern talking about it recently saying that he had uh, gave him back all the demos and they went off and became Van Halen. Uh, well, there, there's, all, there's also myth out there that on Love Gun, and, and Mark, Tommy, correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the rumor, the rumors are that on Love Gun, Eddie Van Halen played guitar on Christine got 16? Love, got Love for Sale, I thought it was. What he did is he just did the demos. He didn't. Play he did. Yeah, he, he he did the demos. But the rumors are that the demos ended up being used on the record. And of course, it's all just rumors. But I mean, do you remember anything back then about Eddie Van Halen demos or recordings during the Logan era? Not that I know of. I mean, I worked on the mix for Christine Sixteen with Eddie, so uh, I I don't recall ever seeing any tracks for Eddie Van Halen. 
Ace just played what Eddie wrote. That's Eddie's solo. Oh, is that uh, right? Yeah, because, well, it's on, don't take my word for it. And Gene released his uh, box set and it's the original demos with the Van Halen brothers. Oh, there you go. Solo that mysteriously Ace is playing. Obviously, the solo was written by Eddie. That's Eddie's solo. Then when Kiss goes and records Christine 16, it's the same solo. (laughs) <laughs> Eddie didn't learn Ace's solo. No way, yeah. no, that this it never worked like that. Yeah, but so that that's my point. And again, there's no shame in that. That's not the way Gene brought the song to the band. Like this is how I want it to go. Yeah. That's all. And Ace just went, okay, I'll play that guitar part. The the name Gene Simmons and Shane are not synonymous. There's no connection. <laughs> There's never been any connection between Shane and Gene Simmons. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't think it exists in his vocabulary. Oh, yeah. I'm I mean, gonna stick up for Gene. I mean that respectfully. Yeah, I was gonna say I'll stand up for the guy. I mean, at, at the end of the day, and we've said this for years, it's all about a great song. And you know, who plays on it is if it's a great song, I don't care who's playing on it. A great song is a great song. If it's a different drummer, if it's a different lead guitarist, if that's what it took to make a song great, I'm all for it at least. Well, I mean, look, in retrospect, we're learning about all this stuff, this this forensic history of pop records, whether it was the Wrecking Crew here in Los Angeles or was these session musicians in New York. Um, my cousin was in a band called Crazy Elephant. They had one hit called Gimme, Gimme, Good Lovin'. And uh, Larry Lawford was the singer. The band never played on it, you know? I mean, there were so many records that bands didn't play on. I mean, the only people that played on the Birds record was Roger McGuinn. Every, every, everybody else was the Wrecking Crew. So Yeah, that Wrecking Crew documentary just, I mean, blows all this stuff out of the water because so much of what you hear from the Beach Boys on down, which you thought it was, it's not. You know, you've, you've got these incredible studio musicians who just nailed track, classic track after classic track. There's no shame in that. But no. some, but I am surprised though, because I've been, I always go down the rabbit hole at night sometimes and I'll watch all of these old 60s um, videos because as a kid, you know, you grew up listening to all these all this music and you maybe see a photo on a 45. A lot of these guys I had no idea what they looked like. So now it's fun to go back and watch. So I was watching the Easy Beats the other night, Friday on my mind. And it was definitely live. And I was like, wow, these guys actually sound really good. So I'm also surprised at the amount of talent with some of these 60s pop bands as well. Yeah. And, you know, ultimately, uh, the Beatles were the the litmus test. They could, I mean, I, I was friends for 26 years with Jeff Emmerich and, um, who made all of many of those records. And um, Jeff said he never took anything away from them. I said, you know, they could play. They could play in the studio. He said they could double their vocals. You wouldn't even know. I mean, it was amazing. He said how they used to come up with ideas. He says, and they never wanted anything to sound like it sounded. They wanted it to sound like something else. So he said, I, had a, I was challenged to find ways to be able to make things sound different, you know? Which is what Eddie did for Kiss, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Eddie. Eddie. One day we had we had took a, I believe, 
no, we, Dr. Love, they call me Dr. Love. Uh, the background vocals, Eddie, uh, we lifted a vibrato out of the Fender Rhodes and we set it up on the console so that Eddie could feed the background vocals into it. So it would, it would uh, tremolo inside oh, yeah. the track. And, and so it was finding, and he had, we had this fabulous chief engineer, an electric lady named uh, Shimon Ron. Uh, from, he was from Israel, he, was, he lived in Queens. Anything Eddie wanted, he would make, you know, and, and we would set up stuff in the studio like that. Um, tape flanging, you know, you, you had to learn all this stuff with Eddie, backwards echo. You had to learn how to do all this stuff with Eddie. That's what I went there for. I wanted to learn all this stuff. This is, this to me was fascinating. I used to analyze these records and say, look at the sound. How do you do that? You know, how do you, how do you do backwards delay? You know? How do you set that up? You know, uh, how did, how did how did Zeppelin get that whole lot of love? You know, uh, it's it's how can and then how can you reuse that? How can you make it different on something else? You know, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it's still to this day. If you if you well, Mark may may agree or disagree because he's a drummer, but it seems like most of the drummers that I talk to all say when the levee breaks, the drum sound on that song is the thing that made them want to record and in many cases play drums that's the one they go back to because of the way eddie was able to mic it however he did it i don't know but that seems to be the one well we all learned it from glenn johns from who glenn Glenn johns Johns. oh okay you know eddie eddie worked with glenn at olympic you know um uh, Eddie, and then Eddie made it his own. Eddie, Eddie developed his own way of doing it. With, with Bonzo, it's more than just like that beat. It's, I mean, right out of the gate on, you know, the first time you put the needle down on the opening track of the first record, you're getting freaking bass drum triplets. The whole world never even heard bass drum triplets. You know, and especially there at the end. I remember, and even to this day, I'm like, and I've been playing drums for almost 50 years. I'm like, that guy, I, I mean, he was just in his early 20s coming up with parts like that. I mean, John Bonham is just a whole different beast drummer. Well, who, who are they? Who is he listening to? He was listening to Louis Belson. He was listening yeah, to Gene. Yeah, correct, correct. Peter Chris was listening to Gene Cooper. He revered Gene Cooper. Yes, correct. Um, he, he, they were listening to, uh, um, What's his name? Uh, the crazy guy, um, Buddy Rich. Mm, crazy you know? guy. You've heard those tapes. <laughs> oh yeah. I mean, I, I listen. You know, I got to know a lot of people who played with Buddy Rich. You know, and and uh, you know, you hang out. Capital was like the place because I mean, my, the first the first album I hosted there as the director of the studio was Frank Sinatra. So I love yeah. I love all that stuff. I saw Buddy twice. Um, Did you really? Yes. Yeah. My brother's a drummer, you know, and, and we all grew up with that kind of stuff. But, you know, learning how to play rudiments and, and to play that way. They were studying jazz. All that early stuff would swing. And as you well know, as a drummer, uh, everybody who in heavy metal that tried to mimic John Bonham as a heavy metal drummer always played the backbeat so far back. And the thing is, Bonhams would swing. All those drummers could swing. Ringo could swing. They all played like that. 
You know, that's why it was such an easy transition, like somebody like Hal Blaine, you know, he, yeah, he Blaine would Blaine just about everybody here. If you've never, if you don't know his name, you certainly know his Blaine. Yeah. I got to know Hal and I got to know Earl Palmer. You know, these guys were just the mainstay of the backbeat. They, they, they knew how to swing the track. Uh, recently I've been working with James Gadsden, you know, talk about, you know, soul pocket, you know, all that Bill Withers stuff. So, you know, it's 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 a thing that you 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 got to realize that it's a conglomeration. Gene and Paul and Peter, they all grabbed it from who they can get. They 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 sort of made it an amalgamation. Their writing and their sound, an amalgamation of what they were influenced by. You know, and and Gene and, and Paul, big students of big pop records. You know, and they just interpreted it you know with a whole new theater a theatrical way of presenting it um and made it come out sonically the same way you know i mean we all knew marshall amp sounded great we knew that that's how you got the best guitar sounds with les pauls and humbucking pickups and uh i never but, but the bottom bottom line with they wrote great songs there's a reason that they sold so many records oh, as sure. Tommy said very early in in the in the broadcast it is i i i stand by that with the fl kiss flag high in the air if you don't like kiss it's because you didn't listen to them you had a bias against them because of the way they look a, a great example of that is the very first review that rolling stone the revered rolling stone magazine a glowing review of the first record and then next thing you know they're you know, they're out on tour and, hey, those guys, I get, you know, now they're starting to get uh, a little popular. And it's time to start tearing them down. And it's no different than what uh, Loader from uh, when he had to write the, the Led Zeppelin box notes. You go back and look at all the horrible reviews on Led Zeppelin. It's amazing how all these critics shit on all these bands that now have sold 100 million plus records or I don't mean, you know, 50 million, whatever. But I mean, there's so much. The, the, I still say that the people, the people who bought the records, are the ultimate judges, not not the critics, not the, you know, there's a reason that Kiss is still here. And you can say, yeah, the, you know, I, and I've said this on the show a million times. Bruce Springsteen's baseball cap in his back pocket is no different than Gene Simmons' makeup. It's an image. It's a marketing thing. It's the way that it's presented. And, and when you go back, but when you go back to it, the essence of all this. No matter what you say about Kiss, whether you love them or you hate them, whether the critics love them or hate them, as long as you're talking about them. Yep. As long as you're talking about them. This is the bill of coin philosophy. That's, that's what we learn. Any publicity is good publicity. It's when you're ignored that you're irrelevant. Yep. I, I agree. Kiss has great music. There's a reason that you know they're still here the songs are great the fans love the songs and and uh you know uh i i i hope they no. they keep on going so no they no no they, they, they never get old well yeah the, ma the, the makeup makes them ageless and he said you know when they did the unmasked thing you know they early on i don't know if you ever talked to gene about it but you know there was a thing about not having the makeup you know, they were they were managed. Did you about Kerner and Wise? You know about those days? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Kerner and Wise, those guys had their own idea about what they should be. 
And I worked for a long time with the guy who produced the original demos, which was Ron Johnson. You know yep. about Ron? Mm-hmm. Now I work with Ron. I wound up working with Ron with Klaus Nomi. You know who Klaus Nomi is? I do not. Yes. Oh, you know Klaus Nomi. Klaus yeah, Nomi. Ger- the German. The German. Uh, male soprano. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was the guy in the fashion video with David Bowie. Yes, and 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 uh, he was this really looked like a space character, you know, like interesting guy. Talk about makeup, and uh, yeah. so so there was times there was a time when when they were discouraged, and, and Gene makes a big joke about it that they didn't want us to wear the makeup, you know. But it's well, it, it it was it was you know the first album is released Casablanca is distributed by Warner Brothers Records and Warner mm-hmm. Brothers basically said you got to take the makeup off we can't sell this with the makeup and guess said the makeup stay in yeah Gene fought for it and you know I didn't know about the Warner Brothers thing because I was hired at Capitol by the uh by Joe Smith who with Mo Austin and Lenny Warrick or whether the, the triumvirate at Warner Brothers to sign everybody yeah, the, the 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 Warner Brothers Casablanca distribution basically disappeared pretty quickly. Really, during the first record, during the yeah, first, during really during the month. first Kiss album being released, that distribution was dissolved. I'm sure Warner Brothers didn't realize quite what they were getting into. You know, uh, it's probably they probably regret. The bottom oh, line for sure. Lost. Oh, yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But they, um, you know, again, they weren't known for commercial commercial bands like that. Warner Brothers was, you know, like the art band. They were signing the Dead and the Doobie Brothers. And, well, yeah. And, and, and Neil Bogart was coming out of, you know, he was all bubblegum pop. I mean, that's what he was known for way back then was all the bubblegum pop music that was coming out. Exactly. And then when I came out here, I was working with Giorgio Moroder. So yeah, but he he made Donna Summer, you know, Mm -hmm. that was it. Um, But Casablanca was hot. I mean, Neil Bogart was hot. And um, we've we've joked on the podcast here that, you know, it was because of the success of Kiss Alive that Casablanca Records was able to survive because they were basically going under. And that album saved them, saved the band. Was Kiss the reason? Was the success of Kiss Alive the reason that Disco succeeded? Because Casablanca was able to then survive. So would Kiss been? Mm. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where you're just like, hmm. If Kiss Alive never happened and Casablanca disappeared, would there have been an explosion of disco music? And ultimately, was it disco music that kind of was was a nail, you know, especially when Kiss Dynasty, 79, 80, you know, did oh, the, disco. Jimmy Einer, the Jimmy Einer stuff. Yeah. Yeah. You know, so it, 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 it it's interesting to look back at musical history like this and just play those. Hmm. That caused that that caused that that caused that if that never happened, would it have been a completely different musical landscape? Well, growing up in New York, you know, I, I mean, I, I saw it firsthand all in New York because Studio 54 was a driving force for all that. Yep. Um, and, you know, I mean, I keep thinking, making me think now about the times and the days when Gene was uh, was dating Diana Ross. You know, I mean, 
he was he was he was definitely exploring other options let's put it that way you know? yeah uh but for sure the scene in new york city because i had worked with in the early days of sheep you know i worked on dance 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 and uh you know they were they were supported by some some guy with a lot of money out of brooklyn you know to who came up on a Friday night in a Rolls Royce and paid dates in cash to record that. So um, I think that that Gene understood the changing trends. They also had a, a tough time too when the popularity of Kiss started to wane and they had all this merchandise that they had produced. Uh, I'm trying to make think of his name now, Ken. Oh, the big merch guy for Rocksteady uh, that Bill O'Connor had hired, and they had they had made the dolls and every all that stuff, and they got stuck with all this stuff, this inventory. I'm sure now it's all collectors' items, and they pay for <laughs> Oh yeah, it's now worth a lot of money. But yeah, I mean, you know, Kiss. It's no it's no surprise to anybody. Kiss has followed trends. Kiss has jumped on trends. I mean, you know. The Dynasty album, I Was Made for Loving You, that was Paul Stanley saying, how hard is it to write a disco song? Here, I just exactly. wrote this. And now exactly. they're, a di- you know, and, and the, in the 80s, they were chasing Bon Jovi and Def Leppard. And uh, I think what it says to me as a fan is Kiss was always able to adapt to the changing times and to do what they needed to do to survive one more year, one more year, one more year. Exactly. Exactly. In fact, I had this conversation with God rest his soul, Michael James Jackson. Um, Because they were out there. He was out. He used to go out in the Kiss Cruises. Yeah. I I met met him. We had, we we had him on here. for. He encouraged them to go on. Because yeah. he just didn't believe that people would care. And we're like, are you kidding? You, you, you produce two of the most important Kiss records in history. Mm-hmm. People want to hear your story. Yeah, Michael is a sweet guy. Really, really sweet guy. Mm-hmm. And I had met him early days when he was at, coming to Electric Lady and working um, with Kiss uh, with Dave Whitney. And, um, and, and I, I think you know, we just lost him recently, so very sad. But again, genes adapted, whether it's NASCAR, whether it's booze, well, it's, whether it's marijuana, whatever. Their brand it's taking is, the, the, the taking the makeup off was a big adapt move. I mean, that was, you know, when they took that makeup off, it was at a point where they couldn't go any further with it on. Because that's all people... People were no longer that Creatures of the Night album that Michael James Jackson yeah. produced. You know, to Kiss fans, that was a groundbreaking return to their core sound. But the rest of the world could care less because at that point, everybody was just seeing makeup and not listening to music anymore. And they had to take the makeup off to have a chance at being seen as musicians. And it worked. I mean, they had 10 more years, millions of more albums sold without makeup. So, you know, and all of that is a test to songs. It wasn't the makeup that made them successful. It wasn't pyro on stage. 
whether it's Kiss or any other band out there, if you're going to last 50 years or more, you've got to have great songs to last that long. Yeah, great songs. And, you know, Gene also likes to be a bit of an enigma. So, you know, going into reality television, uh, you know, developing other opportunities, he's always looking to invest in something else you know he's, he's, he's never been afraid to try something different he's no, not, I mean, he's a he's the type of person who's not afraid to try and fail because failure just means nothing to him i just move on to the next project well it's also opm other people's money yep yep you know so so he's, he's he rarely gets his own money in there you know he's not going to go and, and bet the farm on it he doesn't do that you know, nope. He just figures nope. out how to get uh, strategic partners who are willing to invest in something that's interesting, which is how any small business can do. Michael, we could keep talking so much about your career and what you've been involved in, but it's been over two hours that we've been talking. <laughs> <That's> okay. <laughs> no, and, and, okay, you and guys are great. I wanna, I wanna invite you back because we can talk more about this, even if it's less about Kiss and more about music, because we're all music. Yes geeks about history um but we do have to wrap this this episode up um is there i mean do you have a website do you want to send our listeners somewhere to find I out have a more website. about you? michael michaelfrondelli.com you know it's just my little website uh also coolsvillemusic.com so back in the 90s i started uh, we were the architects of the neo swing movement out here in Los Angeles with Big Bad Voodoo Daddy. Yeah. And I used to go and mine the derby out here and bring artists into uh, Capitol. And uh, Johnny Reno and the Lounge Kings, Ingrid Lucy and the Flying Neutrinos. But if you go on the website, the website's a circus. I mean, it's amazing like, when you see the artwork. My partner, my production partner, Brad Benedict, created the Ultra Lounge series for Capitol and a uh, brilliant music producer and my other partner gary stamler gary managed uh crowded house when i mixed the first crowded house album with don't dream it's over with mitchell Froome. love that record also managed sammy hagar he worked with harry nielsen i mean he works with daniel powder he works with all these great artists over the years uh another interesting character but the three of us have this music licensing company. So go up on coolsvillemusic.com, michaelfrondelli.com, you know. And thank you guys. It's just been a pleasure My, to meet oh, you. Oh, this is this, this is this is ours. Are you kidding? No, yeah, it is. Amazing. This is so much history and, you know, again, this is a Kiss podcast, but we love to just talk music, music and go down the rabbit holes of how that connected to that and this person influenced that and it, it, you know, that was like our conversation with David Leaf was the same way. And, and that's why David, love this. that's why David was like, you got to get Mike on because you'll well, have David, the same. David, David is a historian, you know, I mean, yeah. Um, and I've had such a diverse background with so many different artists in every genre you can think of, uh, probably least amount in classical and hip hop, but everything else. Um, I was so fortunate to, to have nine years at Electric Lady, 11 years at Capitol, and uh, rebuild the Capitol Studios and the brand, and uh, a staff that, that second to none in uh, to Abbey Road in the United States, 
were just phenomenal tech support. So um, I also had the EMI archives for North America. Oops, hang on, let me get rid of this. Yeah, I had I had the EMI EMI archives from North America, two hundred fifty thousand original masters. So, I I used to be able to go to Christmas parties at Brian Setzer's house and watch Johnny Rivers sit there and play with Brian Setzer. Wow. Yeah, I mean it. It was just. I, I, it's so serendipitous. I got to meet uh, the living members of Gene Vincent and Blue Caps. They made me an official Blue Cap. So um, <laughs> that's yeah. cool. Yeah, and tell me great stories about Gene Vincent, Eddie Cochran, you know, and uh, the guys mm-hmm. that were on the road with Buddy Holly and stuff. So I've been very fortunate, and uh, I'm in the midst of writing one book, and we got another one I'm working on too. So. Um, but uh, it's about the history. We, we need to. It is. Got to document this before it disappears. Yep. Or the people who know the history disappear. You know, Phil Ramone. Um, I don't know if you know who Phil Ramone is. The, yes. Oh, yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. I got very close to Phil Ramone and, and, and spent a lot of hours with him with Sinatra in the studio and so many different artists. And he used to say, you know, Michael, as recording engineers, we record history. And it's so true because. At that time, you know, it's not so much today that you're doing it, but when you recorded a band in a room or an orchestra in a room, uh, you're you're creating a, a spirit and it's a, a vibe in the room and capturing that moment in time and storing it somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. we don't have the video all this, but thank God with all the losses that we've had with Tom Berlain and with uh, um, Jeff Beck, uh, you know, losing and David Crosby. If yeah. we didn't have these great engineers and producers that captured these artists in the wild, uh, you know, literally in the wild, uh, where would we be? We have this legacy. And, you know, my nephew, Alex Frondelli is amazing. He just graduated University of North Texas with his master's in jazz guitar. and. He's more about the music I grew up with than anything because, you know, he, he's into bebop, he's into old school, but he's also, he plays great drums too. You, you hear him play drums, it's amazing. So, but he learns everything. He's, he's open. These kids are like sponges in their early 20s, you know, like we were. You know? you've, you've, you've got to learn all of this history because, you know, the newest pick any brand new artist out on the scene today, something historical brought them to where they are today. And to understand that history that led to it makes for a greater appreciation of the work, the effort, the songs, everything. You can just understand how things are intertwined and weaved together to create music. I mean, it's just, you know, we, 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 we talk about it on the show. It's like, yeah, you know, as a bunch of kids, when we were 15 years old, we didn't think about anything more than the new kiss album. But as we got older, well, we saw an interview where Paul Stanley mentions growing up, listening to, you know, uh, the pretty things. Oh, what are the pretty things? You know, okay. Let me go track down that album. And then Gene mentioned, you know, and, and that's what makes, you know, and I'm speaking for myself, but I think Tommy and Mark would agree. 
that's what makes enjoying music so much more fulfilling is when you start understanding how Dr. Love came to be. It wasn't just, it wasn't just written one day and there it is. It's like, well, that riff came from so-and-so and and I was influenced in listening to this when that happened. And now you have a deeper appreciation for your music. And that's not just Kiss, that's every artist out there. I had this conversation with Chuck Berry about songwriting, you know, I mean, the way he would write and say, come out here, work for hours and hours and come out one line. Next day, come out again, maybe two, two lines. He says, and then sometimes in 10 minutes, I get the whole song, you know. Um, it's the craft that I, I really interested me. It's the, the, the craft of, of making records. And um, I got to really, really into it at Capitol. Um, I was one of the founding members of the Music Producers Guild with the late Ed Cherney, uh, who had asked me to be involved with him, and uh, with Al Schmidt and Phil Ramone and Elliot Shiner and all these Amazing, amazing. George Massenberg, Dave Reitzis, Frank Filippetti, all these great engineers and producers, uh, you know, to cra- keep the craft of the making, respect the craft of making records. And I know Gene and Paul respected the craft of making records. I mean, I witnessed it. That, you know, I'm a witness. I'm a witness because I was there and watched how they did it. Was it perfect? No, but great records are imperfect. Nobody they shouldn't, they can't be. Records. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and nobody exactly. buys normal. Nobody buys normal. People who ask me about artists and why certain artists are popular, I says, artists, you know, the more abnormal they are, the more interesting they are. You know? Yeah. And, and they come from broken homes. They come from families that are tough. And, you know, they got stories to tell. Nobody wants to hear about, you know, I mean, Moon June Spoon worked in, in the halcyon days of the 40s and in the early 50s but when it came down to it when things had to be said people were interested in stories so you talk about the songs of kiss the lyrical content of kiss you know whether it's the provocative they call me dr love or christine 16 talking about teenage girls whatever it is you know chuck berry wrote sweet little 16 what do you think he was talking about my dingling (laughs) my dingling My dingling, Maybelline, mm-hmm. you know, well, only look at the line and let it rock. Yep. Exactly. You know, no particular place to go. Exactly. You know, all that stuff ties in. It's just all in how you present it. So it's palatable, not only to the radio stations, but also the kids who are buying the records. Exactly. So Chuck Berry, Chuck Berry, which most artists will revere as, you know, one of the greatest of all time songwriters. Lyrically, he knew how to talk to white audiences. Mm-hmm. And, and, and the same thing with Gene and Paul. They knew who their audience was. They targeted their audience. They're very smart that way, very wise yeah. about, about how to do it. And, and, and they packaged it with makeup and theatrics and put a great show on and gave people their money's worth which is what the Beatles did. The Beatles always put so many songs on a record because they wanted to give these working class people their money's worth. You know, they didn't get cheated. They didn't get disenfranchised. Yep. So yep. I believe the same thing. I believe thing is true for, for Kiss. And if that's my closing statement, I'll stand by that. <laughs> Works for me. They gave good, it's a great statement. 
it's a great closing statement. And I think Gene and Paul would agree with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they gave people value. They gave people and if value. They don't, we'll value. hear about it. Yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> they gave people entertainment. You know, what did what did Gene and Paul always say? When you go to a kiss show, you should forget for your your life for two hours. We want you to be entertained with great music and a great show, and you don't have to worry about your job while you're here. The momentary suspension of disbelief, that's what you want. You want to be able yep. to walk in and just blow your mind. It's true. You know, that, you know and, and on that last statement, it just popped into my head because we're talking to somebody who was in the studio like during the recording of Love Gun. As a little kid back then, we swore to God Kiss was in makeup when they were in the studio recording those songs, how could they have not been in makeup? Well, then don't play. Then, then yes, they were in makeup. There you go. <laughs> I on, they, had, they don't want to destroy people's images. Man. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, they had to be wearing makeup and full costumes when they were in the studio. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seems uh, reasonable. Least, yeah. The answer is yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Thank you, Michael. You didn't wreck your childhood. <laughs> yeah, Michael, this has been amazing. Thank you, Thank you so much. Unbelievable. We, we we will be in touch for sure. Yes, sure. We will stay in touch. All right. All right. Thank you so much. You guys have a fabulous week. You too. You too. Thank you for Take your care. time. You Bye. It. Peace out, guys. That was another one of those musical history rabbit hole discussions that it's we've like we been found so the holy fortunate. grail. You know. You know. This is. I, I'm sure, Mark, you were the same way. I could just sit back and not say anything and just listen to him talk and share the stories and go off tangent. Yeah, you know, this was maybe 50% kiss talk people, but at least I don't care. This was freaking amazing. This is right up there with David Leaf and all the other guests we've had over the last month. These, this is unbelievably cool. Yeah, this, this, so is, this is the type of musical history. So, yeah, homework... Lord. Um, I don't know. Did you learn something from Michael's stories, whether it's about Kiss or any other band? What surprised you? What, what, yeah. What did, what were you like? Oh, wow. What an amazing story. I'm so glad he shared that. Um, I don't know. I mean, this is this, let's make homework open-ended here as a student. It's whatever you want your homework to be related to this show. Yeah. But I love it. Uh, I, I'd say we get Michael back on at some point in the near future, continue his his stories. Um, yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Well, you want to yeah. tease it by we may have some blockbuster, may have some blockbuster information once he checks some logs. Right. We might get some confirmation of something that has long been rumored. Say no more. And, and that's all we're going to say. Say no more. Say no more. <laughs> well, Eric Idle there for you. Um, yeah, so that, 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 that's your homework. I, I freaking love, I just love discussions like this. I feel uh, it was an honor to be in his presence, listening <sighs> to him share his experiences and stories. That's all it came down yep. to. And I hope that all of you listening or watching feel the same way we do. I yep. can't tell you how happy I am about this episode. It's it, it, to talk to someone with that type of pedigree that was there for all of these things is just unbelievable to me. Yeah. And it really is. He, he can remember it. 
Yeah. Very you know? great stories. Great so, memory. Um, yeah. I, I've got nothing else to say. I love the, I love this conversation. Well, then let's end this because Mark. That's, let's just end it right there because, yeah, Mark, Mark, Mark appears to be getting close to the hangry stage. Oh, it has nothing to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, that's it. Three sides of the coin. We'll see everybody next week. If you have something to say, leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call 320-515 for three sides of the coin. Provided by LarryDavisVoice.com. And by Jessica Mars That's Mars with a Z.